Welcome back to the 226th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including how House Democrats are trying to lower the cost of college for students with a few different bills, how the legal gambit going on against Donald Trump may actually work, and it may be the GOP's fault, and a new bill coming out of Tennessee which is an interesting one about LGBTQ marriages. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So I've talked a lot about colleges on here, and that's, you know, there's lots of reasons that I go through that. One, recently graduated from college, Two, next generation normally goes through, at least a certain percentage of it goes through college, and we see a lot of people realizing that college is outside their uh, affordability, and they say, hey, okay, we're going to skip on it. There's a shift in the economy as well. Not everybody has to have a college degree anymore because you can train yourself. So it's a very interesting topic. And the reason I always come back to this side of it, the government side of it, is because I normally disagree with the perspective that the government needs to be the one solving these issues directly Uh, because they're already so ingrained in the college system. I don't see how they've actually helped that much. So when things like this come forward and we see large government packages meant to help in certain situations, there's definitely a little bit of skepticism in my heart. And the reason I gave that entire rant is to really set up the daily debate. Is the fixing of college affordability, does that only fall under the purview of the government or does that need to be something addressed by colleges? Does it need to be something that's pushed for more by parents in a more free market scenario rather than pushing the government to fix it? Why don't those parents, instead of saying, hey, government, make this more affordable, why don't they go to the colleges and say, hey, we're not going to send our kids to you unless it's more affordable, unless you bring it back down closer to where it was when I went to your institution? Because alumni have a lot of pull, especially some alumni that make a good amount of money. So what is the proper mechanism to fix some of these things? I'd love to hear everybody's opinion. Throw it down there in the comment section. If you agree with my baseline that government should not get more involved than it already is, then uh, throw it down there and say something. If you disagree with any other points, throw it down there. I want to hear everybody's comments. So our first article comes from the gyro. And the headline reads, House Democrats push bills to make college affordable for students. And as we discussed in the very beginning part of this, the idea that it has to always be the government. The government is always going to be the one to fix it. As we've discussed previously, there are many reasons that college has gotten more expensive. One of them is the fact that the colleges can increase their costs because a lot of different state governments, a lot of different federal governments, have increased the amount of subsidization of going to college. So if in 1980 it cost $20,000 to go to a state institution, which I would still be pretty darn expensive, honestly, at that time. But let's say it's $20,000. 
And then the government says, okay, hey, we're going to cover one-fourth of students' costs to go to this institution. When we say costs, we're going to talk about direct academic costs. So we're going to give them grants for books and things like this. We're going to give them grants for the college classes that they take. We're not going to worry about housing and all that for them. They can cover that themselves because maybe they want to live at home, which is one way to cut down on certain costs. Okay, so now the college is saying, oh, okay, so $5,000 is coming in from government subsidization, which means that that's actually $5,000 more that people have to spend. How do we capture that? How, how do we, as an institution, and broadly as a marketplace, capture that extra $5,000 of potential now that's not being spent at college because the government's providing relief. Maybe we add a few different programs. Maybe we're able to build a new facility and claim, hey, with this new facility, you'll actually get uh, more lab research time for your biochemical engineering degree. So we can actually charge you a little bit more money in order to get that degree because our resources, our facilities are getting better. And that's true. I mean, you're going to gain a little bit more knowledge. You're going to gain a little bit more experience in those areas. So it does make that degree that you're getting more valuable. So then they're like, okay, we can charge more. And the government says, oh, well, okay, we're looking at this again. And this looks like it's it's pretty expensive for some students. And now, you know, we have parents, they're complaining about uh, the cost of food and housing. So maybe we'll start subsidizing this as well. And you can see how the incentives keep shifting. The more of the amount of money that is being paid for by the government on behalf of the student, the more the college says, hey, that is extra money that people could be paying and now they don't have to. So we can expand a little bit more. We can add a different service and therefore increase the cost. And some of these added services, as I mentioned, are good things. But you can see how the loop keeps going on and on and on. And guess what? If the government suddenly dropped out, a lot of people wouldn't actually be able to go afford to go to that college. And then that college would have to say, oh, shoot, we're not <laughs> we're losing a lot of people because this government grants not here anymore. So uh, we're we're going to have to cut some essential programs. We may have to sell off some of our facilities. We can't actually entice people anymore. So it actually basically enforces the status quo saying government okay uh, the least you can do the least you have to do is keep funding at the exact rate you're funding right now otherwise we'll lose students and we'll have to cut programs and government says no we don't want to cut programs we want to ensure that students can continue to college and help them get into the middle class and have economic mobility so of course we'll leave it as it is right now, even as things inflate over time. So we've talked about all of these sort of factors before, but that doesn't mean, that does not mean that my heart is not hurting for some people that go to college and the system that is currently in place. It's not that that doesn't enrage me or even, hmm, I said enrage me. You already know it enrages me, but it doesn't mean that I'm not enraged that certain people can't afford to go to college and that certain people can't actually move beyond the place that they're at right now. Because, yes, America is supposed to be the place of equal opportunity. And 
it does feel as though sometimes that people people feel as though they're disempowered. So when this option of going to college is cut off from them, I, I'm definitely open to hearing some of the arguments. I'm not trying to say I'm not, but in theory, we, we need to stop subsidizing these sort of things. So what is this new bill, this new package of bills that they're putting forward going to do, and does it have some worthwhile solutions that could actually help with that? Because the government, I'm not saying the government can't have a place in it whatsoever. And I know, I know, it seems antithetical to what I was saying. I, I think there's just a certain approach that will be better if the government's to get involved at all, which I will be skeptical about. So the main person that's backing this up is uh, Representative Bobby Scott. He's a Democrat of Virginia. He told the gyro, quote, that the goal is to allow everyone access to earn a college degree in the most direct route to being a part of the middle class. Most people can't afford tuition or room or board, said Scott, ranking member of the House Committee on Education and Workforce. Tuition is around $50,000 a year, and without significant assistance, they wouldn't be able to attend. So, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big chunk of change. That's a, a good amount of money. And my question always comes back to, where is a lot of that cost going? So I know a lot of different institutions have different cost structures. I know my particular institution didn't charge the most in the world for food and board, but it, it was still at least 25% of the cost. And I'll be honest, I the, the amenities we had were amazing. And when it comes, I take that back, amazing. They were pretty darn good. For the room and board, it was pretty pretty acceptable what I would I paid more or less. And the food was not that amazing, but the food service was okay. My thing is those are costs that can be cut almost immediately. All you really need is food that meets the point of nutrition. And yes, I was a person in college who said, why can't we have this food? Why can't we have that food? When they cut down from two types of chicken to one type of chicken, I got angry. Yes, I, I'm not unaware of that. But college also be starting should be the starting point where you start to say, hey, okay, how am I going to operate in the real world? Am I always going to get what I want? No, but do I have my bare necessities? We could have cut at least two or three options from that food service at my college and still had the bare necessities to get by. And guess what? If we had cut those food services, we probably would have had a lower tuition. So some of these non-essential things, and what I mean by non-essential is not oh, they don't have nutritious foods or foods that serve the purpose. No, you can have food that serves the purpose, sure. But the, the fancy foods or you know, having a whole bunch of really over-the-top different menus each day. No, you could cut that down. You could actually limit the amount of chefs that you have to hire. You can do sponsorship deals or brand deals with certain companies that want to come in and do certain style foods. Like, okay, you know how you have a Chipotle on campus? Maybe uh, a day out of the week, they actually sponsor one meal so that they can produce a, a salad bowl, a Chipotle salad bowl or Chipotle bowl in the normal cafeteria so that actually cuts down on costs. And then you can say to Chipotle, hey, this is actually encouraging people who really like Chipotle or don't know what Chipotle is to go to your Chipotle restaurant throughout the course of the week because they're actually really liking this type of food, which may be a little bit more high quality than the food that we provide by itself in our normal meal plan. You could do things like this, like corporate sponsors for different meals, and that would actually 
uh, eliminate some of the costs. So my point being, there are a lot of non-essential things that are included in these costs when it comes to colleges. And there's a whole slate of these bills that are being passed. And the reason I haven't actually talked about all of them is because they have nice names. And then guess what? They say uh, it's meant to do this. It doesn't tell you how they do it for the most part. So one of them is called, quote, Lowering Obstacles to the Achievement Act. And what it's supposed to do, very basically, and there's lots of different rules and ways that go into the actual getting to the point where the end goal is met. What I mean by that is the bill will describe how all of these changes are meant to be brought into place. But the whole point of this change is to double Pell Grant awards and make loans more affordable and accessible. And guess what? The article doesn't go beyond that. How are you making it more accessible? How are you making it more affordable? Are you saying that it's going to be lower interest rate? So then people are going to be paying longer. Is it going to be for the accessible part? Is it going to be that people who have parents with higher incomes can actually apply for more of these grants? Is it going to make it so that it's more accessible to certain segments of the population that haven't been able to get these grants before? because they have a family member that makes a good chunk of change, but even that family member's not willing to apply. And what I mean by that is uh, a lot of Pell Grants are uh, necessity-based. So if your parents make over a certain amount, you can't always get them. Are they going to make it more accessible that way? Or when they say more accessible, are they just going to have more outreach programs so that more people know about it? All of those are extra costs that come along with the Pell Grant program. Uh, because either you're giving out more money to a larger segment of the population or you're paying people to go out or even just people working in an office to make sure that more people are aware or you're paying for more ads. So the, these are all a whole bunch of different questions that they don't actually answer, which I think I'm not saying that I need to know whether or not they're paying their, um, how should I, uh, acquisition agent, the people that would go out and uh, make sure that people are aware of this program. I don't need to know if you're paying them an extra $5,000 or you're hiring more of them in theory. I don't need to know that 100%, but I would like I would like to know. I don't have to know because, you know, I, I understand what you're trying to do. You're trying to make it more accessible. But there is a way to make things more accessible cheaper than the alternatives that may be put out there. And guess what? Our government, our tax dollars go to this. So maybe we should know. And it's not that they don't detail this in the bill. It's just the gyro is kind of glazing over it because they want to make it sound like, oh, yes, they're trying to make college more affordable. This is the baseline thing you need to know about it rather than going into a little bit more detail because of the gyro. It's being a, it is a left-wing institution, and it wants college to be more affordable. Like a lot of people, that doesn't even have to be a left-wing thing. But guess what? The side that wants the government to do it is normally the more left side of our culture, so therefore they don't describe all those extra costs that would be put on. Because when you say you want a program, and you describe what the end goal of the program is, and you don't necessarily talk about all the costs that will go into it, that is a framing that's going to make some people be like, yes, I, I that program sounds amazing. I want that. And then they realize that their tax burden might have to go up 
uh, 1% over the course of the next year in order to pay for that. And they may be a little bit more skeptical or they're going to look at the fact that you have to print more money and increase the national debt or take out more loans, which means that on our national debt, we'll probably be paying a higher interest rate, especially now during inflationary part, which means in order to pay that off normally, we either increase taxes in the future or we print more money, which is going to actually decrease your purchasing power. So all of these real Real life terms are important, and if people realize what it will cost them, rather than just saying, hey, we'll worry about it in the future, but actually start breaking it down, maybe they wouldn't be as willing to support it. The other uh, parts, there are multiple other bills. I'll read the three names of them, which, again, they don't really describe besides a really quick like overview, which I will also read for you so you understand. House members also want to pass the Respond, Innovate, Succeed, and Empower Act, uh, this is the only one that actually has a cool acronym, which is RISE. And yes, I know I've hated on acronyms in the past, and I still do. Just the bill doesn't just tell me what the bill does within the name of the bill. And yes, I understand they are trying to do that, but they also try to make it all cutesy. Oh, the RISE Act. These other ones are a lot more normal. Opportunity to Address College Hunger Act, the ACOH Act. Um, just so we're clear, that doesn't actually make a cool acronym, and Enhancing Mental Health and Suicide Prevention Through Campus Planning Act. So all of these, respectively, are meant to improve accommodations for college students with disabilities, support students experiencing hunger, and expand access to mental health resources. So all of these things sound very, very noble. But my question would be, at what point do we have to actually take on some more of these responsibilities for food and mental health as taxpayers for these colleges? One of the proposals is they actually leave the kitchen open during summer and winter. That is so inefficient. What is the actual percentage of people that stay on campus for winter and summer? And most of them are athletes, so they actually may already have their own uh, meal plan open. But for these other people, how inefficient is that to have staff there? Uh, for even just one or two staff who you're paying a pretty decent wage, depending on what state you're in, depending on which college you go to, just to keep some of these operations running. And then the increased mental health. Um, why is that a service that the college needs to take on? Why the re okay? There's also there are multiple reasons I think that the college shouldn't be taking this on. I think it should be private practitioners anyway. Uh, mainly because they have to operate in a more competitive marketplace and they don't actually have to try to participate or act a certain way in order to keep that student at the university. Because the the university, the, the psychologists there actually have an adverse incentive to keep the students there. And I'm not saying that they're plotting behind the scenes like, oh, yes, we will keep the students here even though we think it would be better if they actually drop out of college. But if you have a private practitioner who's saying, actually, no, this college thing isn't going to work out for you. It's causing you more stress than it's worth. Maybe you should drop out of college. The college psychologists aren't going to say that. But also your health data, your mental health information, even though it is under client privilege at the health clinics at the school, um, that information can still be used by the school in certain instances. Um, and I don't necessarily think that's a good way. I think it should be private practitioners. I don't know why the school has to take that on. Maybe they do partnerships. Whoa, look at this. Again, I say partnerships. Maybe they do partnerships with local psychologists or um, psychoanalytic firms and things like that. So 
it's interesting. There's there's a few different parts in here where I was I'm I'm empath- like I said, I am empathetic to the argument, but I don't necessarily think this is the best solution, especially when these are this article specifically doesn't give a lot of information. Now, if I have time, which I could very well make time, I may go read some of the texts of these actual bills and and come back to this one. I'm not going to promise anything. I did my own outside uh, stuff before in a few previous articles to get a little bit of extra context and information that the articles haven't provided, and I feel like that's another way to actually provide more value to you, the listener, but like I said, if I have time, we'll, we'll see how that is. And maybe I read some of the provisions. I'm like, you know what? I was a little too harsh here. And maybe I'll read some of the provisions and be like, wow, they didn't mention this. I wonder why. So we will see. So our second article comes from Daily Caller. The headline reads, Dems legal gambit for 2024 might work out and it will be the GOP's fault. And when I read this one, I was like, ooh, okay, Daily Caller, I know which way you lean. Interesting, interesting, interesting. And the reason they're saying this, it really is summed up in one beautiful quote within the first two paragraphs. Quote, a recent Bloomberg News and Morning Consult poll revealed that more than half of voters in seven swing states, 53%, would not vote for Trump if he were convicted of a crime. Currently, however, the polls show Trump ahead in each of the states polled, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, by a margin of three to ten points. So what they're saying here is if he's convicted, even though he's ahead in the polls right now, if he is convicted, 53% of people within those states say that they will not vote for him no matter what. So guess what? That That's almost immediately a losing proposition. I mean, not that I think Biden's going to get all 53 of those people. There could be some RFKs, there could be some Green Parties, there could be some I'm not going to vote in this election. But if you go off of this being a true sample size of the voting population and the fact that those Green Party independent uh, other candidates are not going to take more than 2%, well, that's 47% that would still vote for him if he's convicted, minus or plus the 2% that were going to vote like third party, that's still 51% of the population that would vote for Joe Biden. I'm assuming a lot of things there, let's be clear. So, but the point being that that is not good for him, even though he's leading right now, and even though the GOP can say, oh, we don't have to worry about it. Look, Donald Trump's leading in these states. Uh, They are also making an assumption that he will make it through all of these trials without a conviction. So, the article is going to go on to explain how they actually need to start hedging their bets a little bit. They need to start actually saying, no, these are com- not just what they've been saying, which these are completely false allegations, but they need to be out there on the offense about it. Like, don't let this dissuade you. They're, they need to actively attack all of these different. And when I say attack, I don't mean go after everybody that's prosecuting him, but at least attack the claims made that these are all legitimate trials and these are all legitimate attempts to convict him rather than attempts to get him off the ballot or at least to make people less willing to vote for him so they can change the sentiment and make sure that that 53% actually goes down even if he is convicted, which I'm going to be honest, I didn't think I would be saying this within my lifetime. The political strategy needs to be to convince people that being convicted should uh, not be a problem when voting for president. I'm going to be honest, it makes me giggle because this is the state we're in in this country. It, 
I'm giggling because I shouldn't be giggling. I, I am laughing because it is so freaking absurd that we are at this point. I never imagined this within my lifetime. And maybe I should have seen it coming in 2016 in the reaction after he uh, won the election. Maybe I should have seen it coming after 2020 with uh, the uh, January 6th situation and then the response to that. I mean, like I said, <laughs> maybe there were clues, but... I did not imagine this. I did not imagine American politics to become even more of a melodrama than it already was. So let's go on to some of the Daily Caller's other points, which kind of highlight what's going on. Quote, if the Democrats' legal gambit works as planned, the Bloomberg poll suggests that Trump will not be able to hold on to his narrow margin. This was always the plan. Trump faces 91 felony charges across four different cases, which Democrats hoped would propel him to victory in the primaries, but make him into a poison for moderates and independents in the general election. While the first part of the plan works so far, the second part seems to be backfiring. Trump remains firmly ahead with independents, with some polls suggesting even a two-digit margin at the shock of the initial indictments as the shock of the initial indictments appear to be worn off without delivering on what Democrats expected. That can change quickly, however. If Trump is actually convicted on any of these counts, this is not a marginal issue, and it supersedes even kitchen table concerns. If 53% of swing state voters won't vote for him by default, no amount of fundraising, campaigning, or policy pushes will matter. If Trump cannot win a majority of voters in battleground states, he cannot win the White House, period. So, I disagree with that because there are a good chunk of people who may just not vote because it's Joe Biden. There are a good chunk of what? I mean, RFK is polling at 10%. So if he can get ballot access in all these swing states, maybe that will change something along with the Green Party. And also, I believe the Libertarian Party does have ballot access in all of the aforementioned swing states. So that can also change the situation. So Yes, uh, I, I get where they're coming from. That doesn't necessarily mean 100% true, even though I'm arguing against myself from a minute ago. It does make it really, really, really hard. And there is, of course, the exception case where he's able to get away with just 47% of the vote, but that that is rare. But I'm just trying to play devil's advocate for all their points. I, I'm not being consistent whatsoever. My point being, the reason I brought it in this article is is just because it's 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 a giggle, man. It makes it makes me laugh. It makes me genuinely question what we're doing here in America and if we're going to be able to come back to, from this. So I'm going to read one last quote from this article and then we'll move on to the last one, the last article after this one. Quote Republicans can be tempted to shy away from this issue for two reasons. They are uh, skittish about giving a full-throated defense of Donald Trump and risk being perceived as defending or justifying Jan 6, one of the biggest landmines in contemporary politics. Further, at their core, many Republicans are institutionalists and still feel uncomfortable indicting the corruption of the legal process. They still have to believe the system works, despite all the evidence to the contrary. So they avoid the issue altogether, hoping it plays out all right without them having to put their own political capital on the line. So you can see that Daily Caller is coming for the throats of some of these people, and we'll see if the gamble that they're uh, talking about actually plays out. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. So let's jump to our last article that comes from Salone. 
Salon, sorry. And the headline, Tennessee State Legislator Passes Bill to Allow LGBTQ Plus Marriage Discrimination. And I want to read one very specific quote from this article. And uh, maybe actually two very quickly. Uh, quote, the bill wouldn't just apply to wedding officiants and religious leaders. It also amends Tennessee Code Section 363301, which applies to public government officials, including county clerks who handle marriage licenses. The legislation would allow those individuals to, quote, re- to refuse to solemnize a marriage based on their own religious convictions. Tennessee is attempting to bypass the Supreme Court by trying to skirt around the decisions made in Loving v. Virginia, Obergefell v. Hobbs, by allowing anyone to refuse to perform a marriage due to their personal beliefs. Chapman's, Chapman said, this allows for blatant discrimination to occur by members of the government and clergy, make it near impossible for some couples to get married in the most conservative parts of Tennessee. Those are two separate quotes and two, they're close in the uh, article, but they are in different locations. So the thing that's going on here, which is they're basically saying, hey, people, you if you feel, just remember, if you do remember the uh, 303 creative case that went through the Supreme Court where you can't actually compel somebody to do something that's against their beliefs, whether that be religious or otherwise. It's basically the same thing, but on a state level, and then it's saying clerks don't have to verify uh, a type of marriage if it goes against their beliefs. Now, on a government level, and let's be clear, I, the argument that I've heard from some people I on the right and the left is that why is the government getting involved? Like, why does the government have to give out marriage license? They shouldn't be involved in this process whatsoever. And I agree with that. Now, the reality of the situation is they are involved and they already give out marriage licenses. So if this bill is saying that the government has the ability to discriminate on whether or not they can give out marriage licenses to LGBTQIA people, then I disagree with that. There should be somebody who is willing to give it to them in that office. And you may be saying, well, hold on, why didn't you just say that the office has to give it to them? Because I also do not believe the government, even if you work for them, can compel you to do something that goes against your religious beliefs or your expression of free speech, which may be a form of protest against this sort of act. So in every office, not every office necessarily, or maybe even just have it so that in particular counties you can send people other places or have an amendum where you can go to different offices in within a state, even if it's not the same county that you're trying to get married in, where you can get that marriage license for a different county. Uh, and this is to say, okay, yeah, this one person doesn't want to verify uh, your marriage, and you may see that as discrimination, but there is another option for you. You can go to the next county over. Some people will say that's an unfair uh, thing that some people are going to have to deal with. I would say it is a workaround that still ensures that the government is being equal opportunity. You still can get married in whatever state it may be, and you're also not infringing upon other people's individual rights. There are probably lots of good counterpoints that I'm not thinking of right off the top of my head. I tried to combat a few of them. Um, if you have any, throw them down in the comment section. I'd love to hear them so we can talk about more of the practical part of this. But when it comes to the institutions outside of government, whether that be clergymen, whether that be uh, religious leaders, pastors, uh, or anybody that can get certified to marry people. Uh, I, I do believe, I really do believe that 
if you don't feel comfortable marrying somebody based on their sexual orientation, yeah, you don't have to, 100%. Uh, and let me, let me ask you this. Let me, let me ask you this. If there was a gay pastor who said, you know what, you, you know what, I am not going to marry any straight people because I don't agree with their lifestyle. Are you going are you going to go to him and say, "No, you have to marry straight people. You have to violate your core principle even though I, I don't know anyone that has that core principle, but sure if they have that core principle, you have to violate that core principle and you have to marry straight people." Uh, I would say, "Okay, no, you don't have to. I'll, I'll go to another pastor. There's this thing called the free market." And I even take that back. I like we don't even need to make it about free market economics. There's this thing called options. There are lots of other people that will be willing to officiate your wedding, that will be willing to bless your marriage. There are plenty of other options out there. And guess what? You don't have a right to anybody else's uh, labor, their time, their effort their speech. You don't have a right to any of that. And guess what? For the people that do discriminate against LGBTQI people, the people who say, no, we're not going to marry you, they get paid for doing wedding services. Not always. Sometimes they do it out of the goodness of their heart, but sometimes they do get paid for wedding services. And guess what? There's going to be a person that's in the next county that may be in another city that could be in, literally across the street. It doesn't matter. There are going to be people who are willing to do that service and get paid for it. And guess what? You can go to them. There is opportunity. There are lots of different options. And when I say that, yes, I understand it's not as simple as to say, ah, oh, there's different options. Deal with it. There may be different options that are inconvenient, but guess what? You don't have the right to anybody else's labor, time, effort, so on and so forth, which would all fall underneath uh, time, technically, but that's besides the point. So if it is a little bit inconvenient for you, yes, I, I agree. But imagine that you work somewhere and they demand that you do something you are completely uncomfortable with. Is that okay? Is that okay for them to do that to you? Ask yourself if you'd be okay with that. And maybe you're a person that would be okay with that, which is great. But I'll tell you now, there are a lot of people who, if somebody came in to their work and my job, okay, so my job at uh, my previous locale was to be a greeter, to give people uh, boats, to get them to sign the liability agreement, uh, be friendly, you know, try to get them food, try to solve any issues that may come up, be hospitable. But if somebody came up to me and said, um, hey, actually, I need you to change my baby's diaper. Like, I gotta, I gotta run to the car. Uh, can you change my baby's diaper? Uh, I'll be honest, I probably would have ended up doing it. I probably would have been there. I would have ended up doing it because I don't find it a big deal. But some people would not be comfortable with that whatsoever. A younger me definitely would not have been comfortable with that. And then if somebody says to me, well, hey, I paid to come in here. I, you, you have to do this. This is under the purview of your job. I am forcing you to do this, this amendum that's kind of close because you're in customer service, but it's never quite easily detailed in your job description and you feel uncomfortable doing it, and you feel forced into doing it anyway, is that okay? And I know that seems like a weird analogy, but my point is ha blessing a marriage that is LGBTQIA versus blessing a marriage that is straight, 
they, they fall under the same category. It, it is blessing a marriage, just like the helping the customer with their baby's diaper is also customer service, but it's kind of a, a separate a separate branch, just like the uh, renewal vows. That's a separate, a separate branch, and it's a separate category that you may not have addressed before. You may not be comfortable doing. So, yes, I understand. Weird analogy, but my point being, you don't have the right to anybody else's time, effort, money. I'm going to say it over and over again because it's true. And if it adds a little bit of inconvenience to protect somebody else's rights, remember... When the situation is inversed and you don't want your rights violated and it inconveniences somebody else, just remember that. Remember that when one rule is applied to one person and then you're all for it, but then it gets inversed and you're against it because it affects you. That I'm not saying that's just hypocrisy because hypocrisy, you know, sometimes it can be out of the betterment. Like, hey, I, I want things to get better and I don't realize how things affect me. So hypocrisy isn't always out of a bad place. But remember... Rules for thee become rules for me, and eh, eventually you may not like where that leads. So, let's jump to our final article that is our daily delight. And this one comes from Parade Pets. Lonely Condor squeezes under the door to get mom, and his dedication is amazing. And I'll tell you now, this Condor, uh, beautiful feather pattern. I'll be honest, beautiful colors. He looks like a curious little guy, and I just thought it was funny when you hear where the mom was. Quote, Cheeps had been left out of his cage, which was a common for condors, and more advanced birds like him. They do not require a bit of, they require a bit of cage-free time and often can be found just chilling on purchase chairs, tables, and around the home. But beyond that, the birds are pretty smart about staying out of trouble. Cheeps somehow managed to sneak under the bathroom door, which means one of three things. He was left to his own devices. He snuck out when nobody was watching him, and he escaped from his cage and snuck underneath the door to find his mother bathing. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos of Mr. Cheepers, or you want to read any of today's articles, there's a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find all of them. Also down there, you can find the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine. And the link to the Twitter, which is at your daily flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.